Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope your 2020 is off to a great start. I had a very busy last few weeks. As some of you know, I was traveling to Santiago, Chile. I was in Texas for the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And then I got to head back to Chicago to visit family. I also held a little meet and greet and had a couple of dinners and meetups with some breast cancer survivors and thrivers and caregivers who were in the Chicagoland area. A huge shout out to Andrea and Miranda. It was great. This week's theme is on genetics. We sent out an announcement today in our newsletter that I want to share with you as well, in case you missed it. Well, first of all, if you're not already subscribed to our newsletter, please hop over to survivingbreastcancer.org to join our mailing list. In the newsletter we sent out today, we sent it out every Monday, actually. And today, with all things being new and exciting in the start of the new year, I am pleased to share that our organization, survivingbreastcancer.org, will be conducting its first research project. Specifically, we are taking a close look at the ethical implications associated with genetic testing as it relates to breast cancer, the diagnosis, as well as a predisposition. If you're interested in participating, shoot me an email at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org and we can chat more. In today's episode, we have a few special guests on the show. Be sure to listen until the end to meet one of our volunteers, Maddie Sabhanyagam, who asked some pointed questions to help us understand the role culture plays in genetics. But first, we have a genetics counselor, Fatima Amir, with us. Fatima and I met at a B-PREP workshop taking place at Dana-Farber. B-PREP stands for Breast Cancer Personalized Risk Assessment, Education, and Prevention. It's a program which helps high-risk individuals understand their chances of developing breast cancer and guides them through strategies, lifestyle changes, and risk management to decrease their chances of developing breast cancer in the future. Part of the workshop involved an educational session led by Fatima where she discusses the opportunities for genetic counseling and testing and why we may want to consider scheduling that appointment. Today, Fatima and I discuss the BRCA1 and 2 gene mutation, the importance of knowing your family history, understanding the statistics, and what lifetime risk actually means. Plus, we take a deep dive into understanding our genes, the future of genetics with the advent of artificial intelligence, and so much more. Fatima received her MS in medical genetics from the University of Cincinnati and Cincinnati Children's Hospital. She joined the Center for Cancer Genetics and Prevention at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in 2018. She provides genetic counseling services to adult patients across a wide range of specialties. Fatima has a special interest in providing culturally competent care and in improving access to genetic counseling services among diverse groups. Fatima is interested in community medicine and sees patients at the Dana-Farber Community Cancer Center at the Whittier Street Health Center. Welcome to today's conversation. I'm so excited to be part of this uh, conversation and, you know, I think it's it's nice to kind of get the voice out of also from the genetic counseling perspective. You know, I think we're not a lot of people know genetic counselors exist. I think partially because genetic testing is something that has only in recent years started to become more and more commonplace in the whole healthcare model. Um, and so I think it's it's exciting for me to be able to talk about what we do. Today, you're actually one of our first 
mm-hmm. um, genetic counselors actually on our show also. So this yeah. is a first for us. Oh, that's exciting. So and <laughs> survivingbreastcancer.org, um, who's like the nonprofit of which this podcast mm-hmm. comes out of, is a pretty young organization as mm-hmm. well. And so mm-hmm. we started this maybe about two years ago, two and a half years ago, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And I've coined this term of like, it's an SBC first, because every month, every day, like there was something new that hasn't happened yet. Right, so this right. is one of those SBC first moments yeah. of having a genetic counselor on the podcast. So Absolutely. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. I'm very excited to be part of it too. So Great. thank you for having me. I had an opportunity to come to Dana-Farber mm-hmm. and participate in um, a series that I think is coined like be prep. Yeah, be prep. Yep. Yeah. They hold a symposium, I believe, annually, um, where they have kind of a series of different talks. And one of the things they have also is a genetics kind of workshop, so kind of a breakout session uh, where yeah. we can learn about genetic testing and who should be getting genetic testing. And so, yeah, that's where, you know, you attended the workshop. So I was really happy Excellent. that we connected afterwards. I um, was happy to talk about genetic testing. Yeah, we absolutely have a lot of communication, I feel like, between the genetics department and a lot of the other um, oncology groups, um, because at the end of the day, lots of those groups are the ones that are referring people out to us to genetics, and so um, definitely lots of great kind of multidisciplinary care that we aim for and we serve. So Absolutely. But I do understand that it was geared towards those who do not necessarily who do not have breast cancer, but potentially have a lesion or some sort of higher disposition Mm -hmm. to potentially developing breast cancer. Absolutely. A lot of the women who are followed in B-PrEP, to my understanding, are people who have something about their, um, so something like, for example, something called ADH or atypical ductal hyperplasia, um, you know, something like that, that can increase their risk of potentially developing breast cancer. So oftentimes that might not actually necessarily be um, a hereditary predisposition, um, but sometimes, you know, people do come end up coming through the B-PREP clinic that there's something about their family history or their personal history that might raise a flag or two about, you know, does this person, should this person potentially be considering getting genetic testing? And that's when some people get channeled over our direction to come meet with a genetic counselor to talk about the option of genetic testing um, to kind of explore that a little bit more. Yeah, and I think that really lays the framework for this conversation too because there's so many different populations of people who are interested in genetics testing um or honestly i never heard about heard about it really Mm -hmm. until my own diagnosis i mean i've seen the ads on tv for like you know ancestry or 23andme or like the more commercial side of Mm -hmm. this new opportunity to learn more about ourselves yeah but not so much in a proactive way of one in terms of like disease and diagnosis Mm -hmm. uh, or predisposition to it doesn't have to be cancer um it could be you know any type of like diabetes or other type of hereditary family concerns and then i have a whole population also which i know are some of our listeners Mm -hmm. are those who have been diagnosed with breast cancer already and have now gone through genetic testing Mm -hmm. and they are sitting on information and I think that's another piece of the navigation of, Mm -hmm. one, is it an option for me now to get genetic testing? Should I do it? Yes or no? Right. And then kind of like that labyrinth of, okay, if I do it, Mm -hmm. how do the results come back? How do I interpret them? What's that whole process? I mean, I have more. Mm -hmm. I can spend this whole hour asking So let me just (laughs) stop there because that's, I think, super informative just Mm -hmm. to kind of shed light on Mm -hmm. what genetics is. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good, you know, and one thing I always, I feel like 
sometimes I like to step back in our in my sessions that I have with my patients and just remind them that when we think about kind of if we put everyone kind of in this pie chart of all the people who develop cancer, only about five to ten percent of those people will actually be identified to carry a genetic mutation upon doing genetic testing for them, um, based on kind of the figures we have right now. So the vast majority of cancer is typically just what we call sporadic, meaning it just kind of happens. Sometimes it can be due to some kind of, you know, lifestyle factors or environmental exposures, but oftentimes it can also just be um, because nature isn't perfect. And we talked about this in our little workshop too, where, you know, sometimes just our cells can create an error um, in the replication process and form into a cancerous cell. But what we're doing um, in genetics is trying to identify with genetic testing whether or not someone falls within that 5 to 10% category of people who uh, do actually carry a mutation or a change in uh, in their in one of their genes that increases their risk to develop cancer over the general population. Um, yes. Because there is benefit in knowing that in terms of not just, sometimes it can be helpful for the actual patient themselves if they have a cancer diagnosis for themselves. In some cases, it can actually help guide some treatment decisions. Um, but for uh, oftentimes, it's also really helpful information for family members. Um, so I think you, you, you brought up a good point about like, you know, there's this element of genetic testing where we hear about it a lot in the media in so many different forms. One thing I think from a breast cancer perspective, I feel like that brought, shed a lot of light on kind of breast cancer genetics was the whole Angelina Jolie uh, situation where, you know, she was found to have a BRC and I, I am not that up to date with pop culture, so I can't remember oh, if she had a BRCA1 <laughs> or 2 mutation, but she had one of the BRCA, you know, mutations. Yes. And, um, you know, I remember that was that, you know, we still have this term called the Angelina Jolie effect, where a lot of people, that was their exposure to knowing that they could potentially have been born with a hereditary predisposition for cancer and that they should, you know, might want to consider genetic testing to help guide their care. Absolutely. And... About your statistics that you were just mentioning, yes. so between 5 and 10% mm-hmm. um, show predisposition through family history or hereditary genetics. Exactly. And is that for the general population of just cancer, or is that specific to breast cancer? So that's a good question. It's It can be generalized to all cancer as well, um, but specifically for breast cancer, those numbers probably look the same as well. Mm-hmm. Between cancer types, that number can look a little different. So one of the things we see it a little bit higher for, for example, is ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm. So that's why anyone with an ovarian cancer diagnosis, typically here we're testing all of our ovarian cancer patients um, or recommend testing for them. Um, They automatically do meet criteria. Like there's this national criteria that we sometimes follow who should be meeting criteria to get BRCA1 and 2 testing. Um, And so anyone with an ovarian cancer diagnosis should be getting that because 20% of ovarian cancer can be hereditary. Um, So so we can identify. Exactly. It's a little bit larger than that 5 to 10%. Interesting. And vice versa, then, if you've been diagnosed with breast cancer, mm-hmm. do you have a higher risk potentially then for the ovarian cancer? So I that's a great question. Kind of yeah, so the breast and ovarian cancer, oftentimes people, uh, you know, they can be linked. And the reason that they're often linked, I think, in our minds is because the main breast cancer um, hereditary genes that we know, BRCA1 and 2, um, which actually, fun fact, BRCA is for breast cancer, so that's how the genes were named. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. So um, with the BRCA1 and 2 genes, the main risk obviously associated with them is for female breast cancer, but the second largest risk is for ovarian cancer. So that's one of those genes where you see an increased risk for both of those things. Um, there are other ways in which those, you know, having, for example, you know, your ovaries removed can potentially reduce the risk of breast cancer. Um, now, that's not obviously a one-size-fits-all statement. You also don't want to be recommending people get their ovaries removed unnecessarily. Um, it's also important not to undergo menopause, you know, unnaturally earlier, since that can also have its other kind of effects. But, um, you know, there's definitely a link there in terms of, uh, you know, with the BRCA1 and 2 genes, there's an increased risk for both of those things. So yes. that's why they're often linked. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's something we hear about and talk about a lot in our mm-hmm. breast cancer community. And we've done stories and other podcasts talking with mm-hmm. women about how do you navigate even that decision of your body had just been through so much with a breast cancer diagnosis. Right. Now you're carrying a gene. Are you right. considering a full hysterectomy? Right. And we've been fortunate enough to hear all sides of the story. Yeah. And it's not black and white. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of vetting and, you know, just I think having these conversations Absolutely. to come to terms with it, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the things, so with the BRCA1 and 2 genes, for example, you know, the the hysterectomy typically with the BRCA1 gene, it's a little bit earlier, the age that we recommend someone meet with their gynecologic oncologist to talk about the option of the hysterectomy. So it's, you know, they say past childbearing age, quote unquote, but really what they're saying is past 35 to 40 is that age range they they quote by national guidelines. Um, and then there is, um, for the BRCA2 gene, 40 to 45 is where we start having that conversation. So, you know, we also know that the risk for ovarian cancer, when we're quoting the risks associated with the BRCA1 and 2 genes, oftentimes we're quoting lifetime risks. So yes. that risk number can look pretty high, but really if you broke down the risk and look at models that show you the risk by age, it's actually much smaller over those like five-year intervals potentially. So sometimes I've I've oftentimes pulled up the risk model we might use for that to show people like, okay, you know, even if you carry this gene mutation, this is why we're not recommending you remove your ovaries immediately because really the risk right. is very, very low in the next five years for you to develop ovarian cancer, for example. So we, it's absolutely fine to wait till, you know, the age that we would recommend removing it. Um, and I think, you know, speaking of removing parts, <laughs> um, you know, ovarian cancer, obviously, because it's just one of those cancers, unfortunately, that doesn't have a really solid form of screening that we know of um, that works. That's why there is that recommendation to remove the ovaries. But with breast cancer risk, it's a little bit different. So even though there is a high risk for breast cancer for individuals who have a mutation in the BRCA1 or 2 genes, it's not it's not absolutely necessary for them to have to remove their breasts. So that's something that I feel like with the Angelina Jolie effect, you know, she chose to have a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, meaning she removed her breast tissue. So a lot of people had then this this concept of, if I carry a mutation, does that mean I have to remove my breasts? And that's not true. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, there's also the alternative option to that, which is to just have high-risk screening. So that's where you're getting not just annual mammograms, but also annual breast MRIs. And the data um, shows that the survival rates are the same between the two, which means they're both good options. So there's really no difference there. It really just comes down to, I like to tell my patients, I mean, obviously they will meet with their, you know, surgical oncologist to figure out or their oncologist to make the actual decision so they can go into the nuances of it. But from, you know, just from a general kind of perspective, the way I like to put it is it really just comes down to a person to person choice. 
with the surgical removal of the breasts. It's what we would call a risk reduction surgery. So you're reducing the risk of a new breast cancer by removing the breast tissue. But with the screening, we're really just trying to go for early detection. So you're you're not necessarily reducing the risk of a new breast cancer, but you are increasing the chance of an early detecting something at an earlier stage, which can really change the outcome. Yeah, you brought up so many phenomenal <laughs> points. Right there. Right. I so um, you mentioned lifetime risk. I think that's a yes. really critical point to kind of hone in on a little bit more. Yes. And with regards again to these statistics, because that's a lot of what people have been asking. They want to understand right. like what my risk is. And I think the moment you say a number, they do come into this myself included, like right. fight or flight, right? Like Absolutely. I carry a gene, I need them removed tomorrow, put me exactly. in surgery. Exactly, exactly. So, and you're saying like not necessarily, let's look at the data no. and the long-term lifetime risk. Absolutely. So I'm kind of picturing that like exponential scout, like Right, there's, yeah, there's, so we, there's, um, What I usually use in my clinics is something called the Ask to Me model. Um, So there's a website we can go on to typically that I'll pull up with some of my patients often. And you kind of enter the age that someone is and what what gene they have a mutation in. Um, And then it can kind of not just make some of those graphs kind of like you described, but also put these tables out like, okay, in these five-year intervals, what is kind of the uh, risk that, you know, exists potentially. Um, Now, obviously, it has the limitations of it being a model. Um, and there are things about a family history that could potentially be changing some of these risks too. But it does give, I think, a really nice layout and a visual kind of representation for a lot of people of that, you know, even if we're quoting a lifetime risk, say, of like 20% or 40%, whatever that risk might be, we're not saying that that's the risk every single day, right? Like you're, that's a, that's a lifetime risk over, you know, lifetime studies that have been done. But, you know, the actual risk within the next five years for people your age is this tiny number right here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like that does definitely help people feel a lot better about their, you know, that their risks aren't maybe as high as they Absolutely. might be perceiving and it, it to be. And it gives them some time to do their research Exactly, as well. exactly. And I think it can right. it can definitely help put people at ease too, you know, ease their mind a little bit as well. Um, and, you know, like you said, I think sometimes there is that mindset of, you know, like I need to just take this, everything out right now, like I need to be doing something about this, or, you know, sometimes that feeling can occur understandably. And so that I think kind of rationally puts things into perspective that mm-hmm. you know what this is not something that is as high as your risk perception is right now it's it's still a relatively low risk and the we need to look at the pros and cons of you know removing your ovaries at such a young age might not be a good idea because it can affect your bone health and other things as well so we want to make sure you get as closer to the natural age of menopause as possible before you know making a decision absolutely. like that absolutely <laughs> And speaking of risk then, right? So now we assess like the lifetime potential. Right. And then the different types of, if you're high risk, then the opportunity for more screenings, more regular screenings. Right. I was talking to a woman once, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if every hospital or, again, going back to like standards and guidelines is like this, but she was saying she was getting screened every six months. So Mm -hmm. to what you were saying, one year would be the mammography, and then the second year, or within that year, six months later, it would be exactly. So they were staggered. So she felt very confident every six months having some sort of test. Absolutely. Just to monitor her. Absolutely. And I think that's where it goes down to is, you know, I've met people who are very adamant on, you know, that they don't want to remove their breast tissue, that they would feel much more comfortable, have much more peace of mind with the screening route. But I've had the complete opposite too, where people come in saying, you know what, no, I just want 
you know, to have, go ahead with that option. I know I'll do that if, if I do test positive. And, you know, I think that's where it comes down to every person has a different mm-hmm. story of what different level of comfort with what they're comfortable with. But, you know, the good thing is, is that we do have those options, particularly with breast cancer risk. We know both of those things are really good options. Yes. And so that's, that's definitely, I think, reassuring in right. some ways. And then there's a whole handful of us who have finished active treatment, and we're like, please screen me, please screen me. Right. You don't need the MRI. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, yeah, you definitely have the full spectrum. Absolutely, absolutely. And so a lot of the topics of, like, screening, Mm -hmm. you can meet with patients, um, you know, whether if it's a family history, and to do a panel of um, genetic testing, Mm -hmm. as well as if you have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. A couple of questions along this topic. Um, One thing that really sparked an interest during your workshop was Mm -hmm. the number of genes you could be tested for. And I mean, I'll just stop right there. Yeah. (laughs) I I think I personally was tested for probably the top eight Mm -hmm. specifically for breast cancer, for a breast cancer panel. Right. And I think you mentioned somewhere upwards of like 70, I want to say. Yeah. So the largest panel that we are typically offering can be anywhere between 81 to 84 genes, depending on what lab we're going with. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good thing that you bring up is, you know, there is definitely, you know, over time, our approach to testing has changed a lot. So, you know, back in the day, probably like 10 years ago, if someone had a breast cancer diagnosis and was recommended to get genetic testing at the time, they were likely only being tested for just the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. Um, and, you know, over the years, one, as technology has evolved and as we've learned about more genes, and I think as, you know, um, genetics just becoming more commonplace within the kind of the healthcare model as it is, I think now more and more people are starting to be comfortable with offering kind of the larger panel. So here I can speak specifically to like what we do typically. Um, Oftentimes here we are kind of more of, we cast a wider net is kind of how I like to explain it. So, um, you know, even if someone is coming in mainly concerned about their breast cancer risk in the family, oftentimes we'll still offer a panel of what we might call like a common hereditary cancer uh, type panel. So what that typically is comprehensive for are genes associated with not just breast cancer risk, but also gynecologic cancer risk, which often those genes go hand in hand oftentimes. Um, But then also gastrointestinal cancer risk that includes things like colon cancer. And the reason we're kind of casting that wide net for these these kind of cancer risks is because oftentimes, even if it's unexpected that we identify someone has, let's say, a moderate risk uh, for increased risk for colon cancer, for example, our thought is we'd rather know that information than not know it because it could actually change someone's management. So we mm-hmm. might say, you know what, instead of waiting till 50, like the general population, to do your colonoscopies, you might want to start at 40 and maybe go every five years instead of doing a 10-year plan, for example. So if there's something solid that we can tell people um, and if it could potentially be helpful information for their family members I think that's one of the reasons we've moved to you know doing panel testing because you know even though it's rare there have absolutely been times where we have seen a family that does not look like your textbook example of what we might think of for the mutation that we actually end up identifying and I think that actually is a good segue into talking about the fact that there is lots of limitations with family history oftentimes. So that's something that, you know, we as genetic counselors also train to look at, you know, some of those gaps there in the family history. So sometimes, you know, one limitation in family history provided is sometimes people just have a really small family. Um, So if you have a small family, there's not a lot of people in the family that, you know, you're going to see cancer diagnosis because there's not a lot of people or people died at young ages. And so, you know, who knows if they lived a little bit longer, what kind of cancer diagnoses you may have seen. Um, But then also, you know, sometimes there is families 
studies where there's lots of males, not a lot of females. So you might not be seeing a lot of breast and ovarian cancer in the family because guess what? There weren't a lot of females in the family. So things like that. Or, you know, another big thing is that cancer historically was something, and even to this day, there are some communities where people don't talk about cancer diagnoses. They don't share their diagnoses with family members. So people might not know of cancer diagnoses in the family. And I think because family history is in nature, you know, imperfect in that way, our thought is we should at least cast that wide net for the genes that we know that potentially there could be something that could be done about it. Now, there's always a caveat where some genes in there, we might not be able to change some screenings with some of the risks associated with it, but generally speaking, for the most part, there might be something we could do differently, and so our thought is to rather look at that than not look at it. But at the same time, we meet the patient, you know, with their at their level, what they're comfortable with. There's definitely been times where I've definitely scaled back and done smaller tests because sometimes, especially, you know, if you've had a new diagnosis, you don't want to think about anything else right now. You know, right, right now you just want to know what you need to know for making your surgical decision or whatever it might be. And that's absolutely fine. And that's, you know, I think one of the big benefits of meeting with someone like a genetic counselor is they're going to make help you make your decision in terms of what's the right decision for you. Mm-hmm. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. Oh, so Absolutely. And I think you bring mm-hmm. up such great points yet again about mm-hmm. the different cultures and how we can, exactly. again, provide education Mm -hmm. and that's part of the prevention piece too I know for me you know we're going around we have speakers bureau we're doing events and we're sharing information to empower people to ask the right questions and one of the things I tell people is like go home and ask your mom or your dad like Mm -hmm. get your family history right because I don't know like it's not talked about you don't know about it and then you know I just have like a running word document now of like okay these are all the things I have to worry about absolutely I would you know it's something that simple that you can proactively do and then just keep on file exactly and you know I that reminds me of you know one of the things I hear so commonly in clinic is because uh, oftentimes before people, before we see a lot of our patients, we send them a family history questionnaire. So that gives them the time before they meet with us to actually be able to fill out, you know, the details of their family. And it allows them to give time to ask, you know, the, those exact questions like you were mentioning to their family members. And so many people come into the clinic and they say, I didn't know about some of these things until I asked. Right. And so that's, you know, just goes back to, I think it is absolutely important to, you know, kind of be aware of your family history. And at the same time, you know, there's lots of cancer is sporadic and it's not something that's hereditary. So oftentimes I feel like people come in who might say, oh my gosh, my, you know, there's so much cancer on the side of the family and, or, you know, there's, you know, I'm always worried about this, but I can sometimes be even reassuring to them as, you know what, this type of cancer is most of the time sporadic. It's not something we'd be worried about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes even just that's helpful to hear for people. Exactly. So, Speaking of like relationships that patients mm-hmm. develop with you as a genetic counselor, so yeah. they come in and you help navigate, you know, the panel and what's going to be tested, mm-hmm. either specifically for breast cancer, or you cast a wider net. Mm-hmm. How often should patients then follow up with you for additional testing? That's a great question. So in all the letters that we usually send out after, um, you know, when we're sending out the, the patient's results and kind of after we've talked to them and stuff, in the letter, we always typically include a little little line there that says, you know, testing technology and stuff can always evolve. And so, um, you know, it's possible that there will be more updated forms of testing that would be recommended down the road. So similar to how, you know, 10 years ago when people were being just tested for BRCA1 and 2, and now we know that there are other genes associated with breast cancer risk. So there are people who are coming in now for updated testing that 
wouldn't have been, you know, their, their mutation might not have been captured on the previous test, for example, so mm -hmm. because they weren't testing for that specific gene. Um, so similarly, or our technologies just evolve. Sometimes our technologies can't pick up certain types of mutations at one time that they might in the future. So absolutely, we typically say maybe every one to two years or periodically, kind of, you know, sometimes some genetic counsel may say, you know what, put me in your outlook calendar, you know, every maybe two years or so, and, you know, just reach out to me and I'll let you know at that point if there's any kind of updated testing you need oh, to do. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Okay. And what are some of the technologies that you're referencing? So that's a good question. So historically, you know, so one of the things actually that's probably more recent um, is, and, and this hasn't become standard yet, but let's say, for example, that right now, historically, a lot of the DNA testing that was happening was on DNA. So what, what, what we'd be looking at is the kind of, if, you, if we kind of, and just so we can actually, you know, explain what all these terms are. So if you think about kind of our bodies as, you know, there's lots and lots of cells that build up our bodies. Um, and each of these cells, you can kind of think about there's lots of genetic information that's kind of like a, a code book of, you know, telling the, you know, gives a set of instructions to tell the cell how to grow, how to function, how to develop. Um, you can think of the the genetic information in your cells as being kind of like an instruction manual. So in each of in your instruction manual, there's a bunch of chapters, and in each of those chapters, there's a bunch of words that make up those chapters. Those words you can think of as being genes. And just how words are made up of letters, that's how genes are made up of you know DNA letters. They're, they actually really do look like letters, you know, when we spell <laughs> right. them out typically in the code. Um, but so, so what we're typically looking at with genetic testing is seeing are any of those words misspelled or are any of those genes misspelled? We all have the cancer genes that we talk about, like BRCA1 and BRCA2, for example. We all have these cancer genes. And the typical function of the genes, when they're working normally, when they're spelled normally, is to actually protect the cell from developing into a cancerous cell. Um, but what we're looking at with the genetic testing is seeing, was someone born with one of those genes or one copy of their gene maybe being misspelled? That increased their risk then over the general population to develop whatever type of cancer is associated mm -hmm. with it. So, you know, a lot of the testing, even till today, what kind of the clinical standard is, is to do DNA testing. So that's looking just at, you know, the, the little letters that are spelled out there. You can think of these instructions kind of like recipes that build uh, an actual food product or what you can consider like a protein. And the protein physically goes and does the jobs within the cell. But there's a middle step there for some, and it's a middle step there before, before the DNA actually forms the protein. It's called something called RNA. So now some, you know, one lab in particular has actually started doing RNA analysis in addition to the DNA testing. And so what they're doing is with the RNA analysis, you know, it's basically an added level of, of analysis and the technology, of course, is a little different too. And it has the potential to identify changes that the DNA testing itself alone might not be able to identify. And the reason kind of, I don't know how many technical details we need to go into, but one of the reasons being is because when we look at our DNA, there's large stretches of parts within those individual genes or those words that, you know, um, don't actually code for the protein that we didn't really know too much about. So it's hard to really interpret what the meaning of some of those parts are. Um, but now, but what we can see sometimes is, you know, even if, so the DNA testing typically won't look at that part that is like, it's because it's lots of stretches, it's unnecessary to have the technology try to go over a lot of that too. So it's typically just looking at the pieces that we know what they make sense of and what kind of code for the proteins. 
But what we're sometimes seeing is, you know, DNA testing might not show us any spelling errors, but then when we're testing the RNA, it looks a little wonky. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, hmm, why does this look wonky? And then lo and behold, there's that some part in that middle part of the DNA that we didn't look at that actually has an error in there that allows for the RNA not to be built correctly, for example. Okay. So, as, you know, as it's, it's a little bit of a, a complex kind of way to kind of explain it, but, you know, that's, that's what RNA analysis potentially could evolve into. So that's, it's still very, very new. The lab that has started it only just started it this year. Um, and so we're still in the process, the lab is in the process of gathering data on how often they predict that this is going to actually um, identify a change that DNA testing can't. But it's possible that something like this could become then the standard in the future. And at that point, we might have people coming back to get testing with the RNA analysis as well, because we already do know, at least of one case I'm aware of, that there was a there was a you know something that was identified based on the RNA analysis in the BRCA1 gene that the DNA testing did not pick up. Wow. So so it's it's a possibility theoretically, and we've seen it happen. So it's who knows how That's much more it's going to happen. If I'm understanding yeah. correctly too, it almost sounds like in the RNA process, yeah, it's providing that like that key of like oh I caught something like a, a double it's, check. Exactly, exactly, yes. exactly. So it's it's definitely helped a lot. And the other thing it's also helped with is, you know, with anybody who's had genetic testing might know that there's actually three possible results you can get with genetic testing. Oh, I was going to ask. Right. So <laughs> I actually am a recipient of that. Right. <laughs> um, so which is a great question, too. Yeah. About, and I, before, and also with all the different screenings, and maybe this will be part yeah. of your answer as mm -hmm. well, because I'm very curious, especially at this day and age, with the role of artificial intelligence mm. and how that is infiltrating in terms of just screenings in general. Yeah. So that's just like, we'll, we'll talk about it because it's super yeah. exciting. Right. And, <laughs> um, but you're going into all the great science detail. Like, yeah. you know, I think what we're really great about doing on Breast Cancer Conversations is having this conversation, right. doing the analogies, talking about the food, the letters, the DNA. Right, exactly. That's what people can relate to. So yeah. I'm sure we can do that with the AI conversation. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so I was overwhelmed with the breast cancer diagnosis. I mean, yeah. I went in for mm -hmm. the genetic testing, mm -hmm. chose, you know, a smaller panel because I wanted to focus just right. on... Um, the, the potential genes, high-risk genes. Right. And also for the people that are listening to, it's not just necessarily BRCA1 and BRCA2. Exactly. There are, and I probably can't name them all the way you can, but I know there's like HELB <laughs> and ATM. Exactly. And so, yep. There you go. <laughs> so there's a whole list. Yeah. And I'll definitely link to them in like the descriptions if people want like right. more information. Mm -hmm. But I got this letter back mm -hmm. and it said that I had a variance of unknown significance. Right. And I'm like, I just got diagnosed with breast cancer, and my oh. results are already coming back gray. Mm -hmm. Like, I just want information. Solid, yep. Yeah, and so that's uh, something we always talk about in energetic counseling sessions as well, is there's three types of results you can get back. So one, the one and two are kind of easier to understand, right? A positive result, meaning, yes, we identified a change in one of these genes we know is harming the gene's function, and therefore, you know, what, what would we typically say? Yep, we'll come back in, and we'll talk more detail about what that gene changes. Um, the second type of result, just the opposite, negative. We didn't identify any harmful changes. It looks like the genes are working just the way we would expect them to. The third type of result is exactly that, that variant of unknown or uncertain significance, VUS for short. Yeah. Um, and really what that basically is, is a fancy way to say maybe or inconclusive. And what that really is saying is that the lab identified a change in one of these genes, so a spelling change in one of, the, in one of these genes, that they just don't have enough evidence right now in this at the, at this time to classify definitively as it being a harmful change or a completely normal 
you know, benign change, not changing anything differently. Because we know that there's lots of normal changes in our DNA. So as you can imagine, we're all human, we all have human DNA, but there's lots of normal variants in our DNA that just make us different from one another, but it doesn't actually have any harmful, you know, effects. Um, and so we, we actually, the way we usually will talk to our patients about those variants of unknown significance, you know, when we're talking about our kind of pretest um, counseling, where we, I always say, we do not worry about these these types of results for the most part because we know that 90% of them, when the lab learns more about them and are reclassified, are reclassified to a negative because there's lots of normal variation in our DNA. A lot of them end up being chalked out to that. Um, now, there is very few cases where, you know, that 10% probably that does get actually upgraded where they do learn more about it and it can actually be a truly harmful mutation. Um, but because the vast majority of them are not, we typically kind of treat them as innocent and so proven guilty. And down the road, if the lab ever learns more about them, they let us know and we let you, you know, the patient know. Um, mm -hmm. But I will also add that, you know, all the reports typically have a description of what evidence they do have presently for for that specific change or that variant of unknown significance. Yes. And I always um, go over that description before I call out results to my patients. So okay. what I'll typically do is kind of look over that and really that sometimes can give me a better sense of, you know what, I'm not at all really concerned about that. And very rarely I'll be like, hmm, that does look a little bit fishy to me. So sometimes I'll run it by the larger group, I'll, you know, and very rarely we've actually treated some of those uncertain significance results as a positive result. Okay. Um, so, you know, we actually, um, you know, there's, there's, and there's been, you know, one incident I know of where there's been a variant of insignificance treated for the longest time as a positive by um, someone in our group. And, you know, lo and behold, many, many years later, it did get upgraded to a likely pathogenic wow. mutation. So I think that just, I think, hones in on the point of sometimes it can be helpful from as a genetics provider to really look, you know, right. critically at what that change might be. Absolutely. You mm -hmm. have, like, your standard, and then you have, like, your gut. Right? Exactly, and exactly. And what information cases. we know, and you know what, maybe it's probably safer to, given the family history, given this, that we might treat this as a positive. Yeah. Which leads me to my next question. Mm -hmm. So if you have, I mean, whether or not you have this variant right. of unknown significance, right. sometimes people are asked then to go back to their family members and ask for additional testing to help paint this larger picture. Yep. And that can also be very tenacious, right? We're talking yeah. about some of these like ethical issues or like mm -hmm. dialogues that aren't always easy conversations to have. Absolutely. Can you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. So family communication is a big thing, right? That can come up and, you know, sometimes it, it's it's something where I know at least um, for our patients, sometimes I'll, so kind of speaking to, you know, the even the what, why, why even have someone else get tested in the family, oftentimes that's because, you know, the person who got the testing might not have been the best person in the family to get the testing, or there might be someone else who could give us a clearer picture. So for example, if we're testing someone who, you know, there's, let's say there's a family uh, that has a lot of breast cancer in the family, and, you know, people in the family who've had the breast cancer diagnosis themselves have not been tested, but someone who hasn't had breast cancer is curious about their risk to know whether or not they have an increased risk, and they go ahead with the genetic testing. Now, if that person who does not have breast cancer tests negative, meaning they didn't identify any changes, there's a little bit of a limitation there where we don't know that they tested negative because the breast cancer in the family is not due to a hereditary cause or that they just didn't inherit the gene change that could be explaining some of that 
family history. So that's where sometimes there's other people in the family we recommend get the testing, you know, to, to help clarify the pick the risk in the family. And, and, you know, sometimes if the person who has the cancer of concern tests negative, we might not even recommend anyone else in the family getting testing. Um, so it depends kind of family to family, of course. But, um, Oftentimes, like you mentioned, the family communication thing is a big thing that can come up. Um, and so sometimes what I'll, I'll offer to do for patients is write a family letter, kind of a generic letter that I can type up that so they don't have to worry about having to have all the details or anything like that there. But I can write a generic kind of letter and then send it to a patient, and then they can kind of forward it and edit it as they please to send customize it, send it to their relatives. So they don't have to worry about having that conversation or anything like that. Yeah, it's very, it's very hard. Um, it is. We navigated that with my mm-hmm. family personally, yeah. and just really trying to understand um, that genetics is bigger than the individual, Absolutely. and trying to say, yes, we want you to get tested, and I know you don't want to know the results, but your results yeah. can impact my treatment plan, my surgery choices, right, and that sort, and that was hard. It there is. There was anger. There was like... Absolutely. It was, you know, it resolved itself. Yeah. Um, in the sense that... For me personally, I came mm-hmm. to peace with the situation, yeah. and I was able to do enough research to learn about the surgery options to then right. just be comfortable regardless of what mm-hmm. the result was going to be that right. we never actually tested for. Right. I knew what my surgery options were going to be, and me and my oncological team felt very confident in that. Right. So you're right. Like you have this team of people that you just talk through and talk through and right. you know, and meditate abs- on it a little bit. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's... Yeah, like you said, I think everybody comes in with their their different story, whether it's their personal kind of, you know, journey with their own diagnosis or whether it's, you know, their family history. And I think, you know, not everyone feels comfortable going forward with the testing and they have their own reasons to sometimes, you know, people don't want to feel, um, you know, just want to sometimes people cope with this information by distancing themselves from the information altogether. So people cope differently and we see that sometimes often is that you know some obviously we have an ascertainment bias for who's coming through our doors or people who generally are people who want to do the genetic testing um but we do say that you know you there's no harm in meeting with the genetic counselor and not going with it you know we we they're exactly exactly sometimes i'll tell people like you know even if you're not comfortable you know going forward with the testing we can walk you walk through with you with this kind of with this process and you know you can make your informed decision at the end of the session but, Absolutely. you know, sometimes we'll, some, one of the other ways we'll sometimes go over it is I think there's so many misconceptions out there also about, you know, genetics and having a genetic mutation. So one thing, for example, I like to also hammer home is having a mutation in a gene does not absolutely mean that you're going to develop cancer. Right. So right this is not, risk, right? exactly, exactly. There is so taking the example of BRCA1 and 2, having a BRCA1 and 2 mutation, you know, the lifetime risk is estimated to be anywhere between 50 to 85% lifetime risk of breast cancer compared to the general population's risk of 12%. So it's a significant risk, but that also means that there's a 15 to 50% chance that you're going to have a BRCA1 and 2 mutation <laughs> and not develop breast cancer in your lifetime. Right. So, you know, it's it, there's very few genes that have a near 100% lifetime risk. And so, you know, having a gene mutation does not mean you're going to get cancer. And sometimes people have either had a personal journey where they've seen someone in their family undergo cancer mm-hmm. diagnosis and that's been really hard for them so for them they don't want to come to terms or even come to face the thought of have 
potentially finding out about an information that could, you know, tell them that maybe they have an increased risk of cancer because they've had, you know, a really difficult time seeing a loved one go through something. And so there's lots of things that can factor into why people make that decision. But, um, you know, one, one way to sometimes go about it is, let's say there is someone in the family who's really motivated to, you know, want to have that conversation about genetic testing. Sometimes they say, you know what? What you know, if it's an option, maybe you can bring in your relative with you for your session as your support person, oh, sure. and then Great they idea. can be exposed to the to the conversation and maybe some some mis you know if they have some misinformation that can be kind of clarified, you know through the through the session they have the opportunity to ask questions as well, and then sometimes maybe that's something that can you know um, help them feel more comfortable with making whatever the right decision is for them. Sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So this topic of you know, family history, not having like an individual response to it. It's like kind right. of larger than ourselves. Yeah. And tying this back into the technology with artificial intelligence and the more information that we're receiving. I'm So when I got genetically tested, it right. literally was just a blood test. So for yeah. people who, you know, we're talking about DNA and RNA and all these new technologies, yeah. but literally it was here, go get your just blood, blood drop. done, yep. drop it off, <laughs> and you'll get results in two weeks. It was painless, yeah. it was easy, it was like just giving blood for right. anything else. Right. Um, but then, so I just envision not having ever walked into like any of these labs, just like some <laughs> right. big, huge database with all these like <laughs> letters and sequencing, and it keeps growing and growing and growing the yeah. more um, information that gets put into that database. Right, right, so, right. Yeah. And so that's a good good thing. So one of the things that comes to mind, one of the words that comes to mind when we're thinking about genetic testing, like from that standpoint, is big data, right? So yes. lots of big data is being generated when you're sequencing someone's, you know, genes and stuff. Um, and now, you know, disclaimer, I don't work in that kind of side of things too, of, too often. But, um, you know, certainly the people, the really talented people who are working in the labs and stuff where, you know, there's definitely pipelines in process of how they kind of go from the raw data of like actually having this, these really huge files coming out of the sequencing, you know, machines and stuff like that. And then how do they translate that into something that, you know, where they can narrow down all these regular variants that are also being picked up and, you know, just zooming into, okay, what are the actual potential variants here that are actually Mm -hmm. harmful? So there's definitely a whole process that goes in there. Um, And I think that's where what's what's beautiful about like just the evolution of genetics that I think a lot of the evolution kind of goes hand in hand with the evolution in technology. And so <laughs> those yes. kind of two things have been worked nicely for one another as well. Yes, and no, I think there's a lot of positive outcomes coming from exactly. this. One thing I want to be incredibly cognizant about mm-hmm. too is in my own um, you know, experience talking and having conversations with people, mm-hmm. the likelihood of who is the person that's most likely going to be getting the genetic testing mm-hmm. in terms of like demographics and ethnicity. Right. And as we're feeding this database with that person's data, Absolutely. how does that impact um, the, the population of people who are getting mm-hmm. breast cancer and are, have higher risk just based on being Hispanic or African-American Absolutely. or Asian? Absolutely. So you bring a really great point is with genetics, historically a lot of the, you know, when we think about kind of, you know, when, when we're identifying whether or not someone has a harmful mutation or not, when we're comparing it to a reference, the reference is oftentimes mainly made up of Caucasian individuals. Um, and so we talked about earlier that there's lots of normal variation in our DNA, and that kind of goes across, you know, different ethnicities. And so we know that 
because the reference database is made largely made up of a Caucasian individual, you know, individuals, um, there can be a little bit of a higher chance of getting back those variants of unknown significance yes. for individuals who are not of Caucasian descent. And sometimes I'll kind of, you know, mention that in our sessions too, is that we don't worry about them. You know, there's, we're testing all these genes. There's a pretty decent chance we're going to get back some. You know, we, we estimate we get about 30 to 40 percent of the times we get back uh, one of those inconclusive yes. type results. But, you know, there's definitely, you know, I think a lot that we're, uh, there's definitely, I know, initiatives out there that are trying to, you know, diversify the the reference databases we have. Um, I know uh, just recently I was at the um, at a conference for the American Society of Human Genetics, and I know there uh, I heard um, people talk about the All of Us research study. Yes. So you've probably heard of that. I think it's out of the NIH, if I uh, if I'm if I'm not wrong. And yes, um, I know that they have tried to really try to recruit actively individuals um, of various underrepresented populations um, to try to you know and and part of they do have genomics included in their kind of study as well. Um, I know personally I was a participant of the All of Us research study, oh. so I think it was like six or seven tubes of blood. I can't remember. It was quite a number of tubes of blood that we that we donated, but you know. I, it's, I think this is like one step in the right direction and I think there's definitely I think um, more and more we're being cognizant of the fact that you know we want to make sure as we're evolving with our technology and making you know get, making our genetic testing even better we want to make sure that it's better for everyone yes. um, and not just for select individuals so that's 100%. definitely something that we uh, I think are being more trying to be more and more cognizant of and it's so reassuring to hear I definitely am yeah. a proponent and want to get the word out there too also mm -hmm. through the podcast about all of us and how that's what it's called mm -hmm. right yes yep. all of us yes and how people can donate their blood and be absolutely. contributing to this absolutely and that in turn is also going to lead to like the the up and coming technologies around precision medicine, mm -hmm. being able to understand your your specific genetics, and then exactly. developing a chemotherapy or an immunotherapy drug to target right. that specifically. And so, absolutely, it's traveling fast. Like it's happening right. now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which is awesome. Right. So like right. These things are taking place right now, and people have a very. Um, mm -hmm active way of making a difference which absolutely I think is so cool. absolutely uh, so I have to ask too because I'm uh -huh. super curious so like if we're getting to a point where we're able to identify that you carry a particular gene mm -hmm. are there ever going to be an opportunity or maybe it's happening now and I'm not aware of it mm -hmm. in terms of like let's say I want to have a baby and I'm carrying the BRCA1 gene is there a way that I will be able to remove or even do mm -hmm. a test to see before I even give birth mm-hmm yeah. Okay. You're so good. that's it. I, I yes. Yeah, so you know what I'm trying to ask. Right. What's exactly. Like reproductive implications. <laughs> yes. Right. Like. Okay. So, so yeah. So with the BRC, you know, we know of something called um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is one of the technologies that has come about with the advent of genetic testing as well. And what that typically involves is, you know, when it's going through. So let's say, like you said, like we know someone who has like a BRC one or BRC two mutation, for example, and um, they're, you know, this this person is, um, you know, thinking of having children, they can go through the IVF process and do something called PGD, for short, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is the whole mouthful, where they can actually 
test the embryos for whether or not they carry the mutation and then only implant the embryos that do not carry the mutation. Wow. So that's one way that you, you know, that's, that's an option. I know we have a group at the Brigham who does, uh, who does reproductive genetics. And so you meet with the genetic counselor similarly. I mean, here I do just cancer genetic counseling, obviously. Um, but there's other genetic counselors who work in things like reproductive genetics, where you then meet with someone to talk about how that's whole done. You know, if people do carrier testing, you may know that's kind of a different ball game is knowing what, if there's any risk um, of, you know, potentially passing on a genetic, um, you know, condition to your child. Um, but then obviously there's also then other options too, you know, in terms of some people consider, let's say, you know, having an egg donor or something like that. Um, now, as far as BRCA1 and 2 mutations, we're typically not testing children. Um, so that's where some of the ethics come in and stuff because it's an adult onset condition, yes. uh, meaning the risks don't really take uh, take place until someone's an adult. We typically don't recommend testing children and kind of leave it up to their, be it being their autonomous choice to get testing um, when they're an adult. Um, the only time, you know, we it might be appropriate to test a child for a BRCA1 or 2 mutation that I can think of off the top of my head, particularly a BRCA2 mutation, is, you know, there's, um, for someone who is a BRCA2 mutation carrier, um, and if their reproductive partner is also a BRCA2 mutation carrier, there's a 25% chance that their child will inherit both copies of the gene that carried the mutation mm -hmm. on it, and then that child can have something called Fanconi anemia. Um, so it's a little bit of a different uh, syndrome, and that can have childhood onset implications. Oh, and so okay. that's where you might consider testing a child as well. So, but not to go too no, off on tangents, no, but... Uh, no, that tangent, <laughs> no, I think that's exactly where the conversation right. is. Like, mm -hmm. these are all conversations that people are happening. This is exactly the, as you're mentioning, like, the contemporary conversations that are happening in the genetics Absolutely. field. And the more that we're hearing this, even though there's, I'm taking notes over here yeah. of all of these, like, PDG and RNA, yeah. and don't worry, guys, <laughs> there'll be a blog about it, and we'll write all these terms <laughs> down. But, you know, I think this is empowering us to then ask the right questions and giving Absolutely. us a resource to say, hey, I heard of this thing and I'm, you know, in my 30s, I still am considering having children. I'm about to consider going through chemotherapy to kill the cancer, but like what are my options? I mean, that just opens the floodgates for Absolutely. opportunities Absolutely. and dialogue. Absolutely, you're absolutely right, and and you know I think with genetic testing, there's so many so many applications of it too. Like you mentioned earlier, it's not just you know what we call germline genetic testing, meaning where you like you meet with genetic counselors, see what, where you're born with any changes in any of these genes. So is there a change in all the cells of your body, basically? But then there's the tumor genetic testing, right? So like you mentioned earlier, where you're testing the actual cancerous cells to be able to target any treatments there. Um, and then there's, you know, obviously genetic testing and other aspects too, like the reproductive genetics implications yeah. there as well. And just yeah. so, ma so many applications. And I think it's just ever growing because yeah. the more and more we learn about how genetics can be implied in, in healthcare, I think the more we're learning about that. Yeah, I feel like mm -hmm. we're just now, I feel like this is like episode one of many. Right. Because we are just I like mean, laying the foundation. Right. I mean, it's what it was it's just we're in the first like what two decades of having sequenced a whole genome and I mean I know what's what's kind of crazy to me sometimes and that's why I just feel so uh, honored to be able to work at a place like Dana-Farber but you know I, I work with colleagues who have been offering genetic testing for BRC1 and 2 since the 90s and I'm like that is just pretty amazing like right. we were offering testing for this before the human genome was sequenced like what awesome. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So definitely really cool. Definitely changing a lot of lives. Yeah. There, so that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And 
I guess in terms of next questions, mm-hmm. I think you've answered a lot of our initial questions about how to interact with a genetics counselor, when is it appropriate, when is it appropriate to follow up with them. Yeah. Um, for all the people who I left in suspense about my um, inconclusive diagnosis. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I remember it is so commonplace now to hear, you know, BRCA, BRCA1 and 2, mm-hmm. it's, you know, rolls off the tongue. But mm-hmm. at the time, it was the first time I heard of it. Yeah. Never, I don't think I ever looked back at that letter. I was just like, right. okay, there's some variants going on. There was the whole family ethics and, you know, decision making and right. argumentation. And, right. you know, there were so many other things happening yeah. that, you know, fast forward two years, I'm like, oh, there was a, mm-hmm. you know, inconclusive result. Let me go back and pull out that paperwork. Yeah. And it was on the BRCA2 gene. Mm-hmm. And now everything that I know about BRCA2, I'm like, oh, like oh. how come I wasn't more, like, concerned? I mean, I just yeah. didn't have time to be concerned. Right, right. It you had so like, much on your plate that right. you didn't, and yeah. you were saying, too, that even in that place, it would be treated as a negative, mm-hmm. um, or usually, depending right. on, like, right. the bigger picture Mostly of my own personal true, yeah. Yeah. background mm-hmm. and family history. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did get a letter mm-hmm. recently okay. telling me that my particular sequence mm-hmm came back, I think it was like 90th percentile being classified as negative. Okay. So that was great news. Yeah. And I'm just sharing this also in terms of sharing the information about the the follow-up care, right? Right. Like I didn't call my genetics counselor. She called right. me. Right. There was a little bit like a heartbeat panic moment of like, what? Because you know the caller right. ID. I'm like, that's the right. hospital. Why are they calling Right, me? right, right. <laughs> like, I don't have an appointment. I didn't miss an right, appointment. Right, right. Um, but they were delivering good news. And... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's just like staying in the database and staying up to date exactly. as the new technologies are coming out. Absolutely. And so typically what a lot of the labs are doing is that they have kind of, like you said, like kind of in their database almost of like this list of these variants of unknown significance or these inconclusive type results that um, they know they have and that they are um, they they are basically every six months or so doing a review on potentially of seeing is there any anything else out in the literature? Is there any internal data they have to support to reclassify? one way or the other, some of these variants. And then as they do, then they typically, at least I know here, the lab will let us know. So they'll issue us an amended report. Um, and then we then contact the patients to let them yes. know. Um, and typically we'll just send them a letter, which again, for the most part, they're, they've they been reclassified to a benign or likely benign yeah. uh, result. And so we send those like nice little letters that, yeah. you know, if, even if this was something that was on your mind now, it definitely should not be right. because exactly. it was nothing. Love it. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that we did not ask or cover that you would like to share? Yeah. So that's a good question. I think one thing that, you know, is probably also worthwhile to mention is, you know, when when we think about kind of when I kind of going, going back to what I had mentioned earlier with the with the pie chart and you have um you know, the the five to ten percent people who do are identified to have a mutation and then the vast majority of being sporadic, meaning we don't actually identify a mutation for them. There's also a little bit of a category there called familial, which means that we might see multiple people in a family that have, you know, maybe breast cancer or some type of cancer in the family, um, but we haven't identified a genetic mutation for them. So maybe they were negative on genetic testing. Sometimes the reason we also have that multidisciplinary care model. It's not just genetic counselors you're seeing, but sometimes you'll also be seen then with the physician as well who who has, you know, background in genetics is because 
we sometimes might still recommend that you get maybe some kind of high-risk screening based on your family history as well. So the way I like to explain it is your genetic testing results are not an end-all be-all. It's not just, we're not looking at that by itself in you know isolation. We typically are looking at your genetic testing results in addition to your family history and your personal history to help guide your care. Because at the end of the day, there's, as, you, as we've talked about, I think that the, the constant evolution of genetics, there are limitations with genetic testing. So there can be genes we haven't discovered yet that could be associated with, say, breast cancer risk, for example, or our technology is evolving. So maybe our technology might pick up mutations in the future that they're not picking up right now. And so for these reasons, we don't ignore family history, we might still take that into account to change someone's care. Um, so that's why I think it can be beneficial to just, you know, whether it's your provider, your, um, you know, if you've met with a genetic counselor or anyone, oftentimes hopefully it'll then be referred into the appropriate channel of if you still need any kind of different screening that you're, you might still get that even if you were negative. Yes, yes. And to conclude yeah. on that note, yes. so I got this great call, it was negative. Yes likely benign. I got uh -huh. the letter in the mail. So uh -huh. I'm like, that's great news. Right. And then immediately was like, well, then why did I get cancer? Right. So do you right. fall into that? You're back to the right. sporadic. You don't have a reason anymore. But yeah. I think I say this all in good humor right now because it's genetics and it's evolving. Absolutely. And I think genetics testing was one of the first experiences I had when I came to realize that medicine is not a perfect science yeah. and it's really interdisciplinary and it's very absolutely. unique per person. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And you know, that's what I say. I think you know, one of the things I remember that stood out to me when I was still in training in graduate school um, was, you know, when we think, because we're also trained as genetic counselors to, you know, from a psychosocial counseling perspective. So one of the things I remember that stood out to me at the time was, you know, we, I think, going before, you know, go before my training, I would have thought that, you know, just a positive result is what's typically something that someone's upset by. But a negative result can be upsetting to some people too, because sometimes people need an explanation for why what happened to them happened yes. to them. And sometimes not having that explanation can almost be more frustrating. Um, and so, you know, I think as human beings, and this is sometimes I say often to my patients as well as as human beings, sometimes we we have the tendency to want to put a finger on something and have a crystal ball and say, this is why this happened or, you know, yeah. that this is, um, and sometimes people, you know, I, I, I like to remind people, don't blame yourself for having done something. If I just did this differently, if I just did differently, there's also a big percentage of cancer that happens because just nature isn't perfect. And our cells, exactly. Are you think about, you know, when we talked about all that DNA in our in each of our cells, there's billions and billions of letters in each of our cells. And every time a cell's replicating, it has to copy all of those letters each time. So think about a Xerox machine. And if that's copying again and again and again, it's bound to make an error at some point. And exactly. so our cells are the same way. They can sometimes just make an error. And even though there are mechanisms in place to, you know, to, to correct those errors, sometimes those mechanisms might not work properly. So that's where just nature isn't perfect. And sometimes these things happen. But, you know, we want to make sure that you are being taken care of well and that you are, you know, kind of um, we are we are here kind of to help guide you if you're concerned about do I have this risk I might have been born with? Do I have a lot of cancer in my family? Are there people at a young age being diagnosed with um, a certain type of cancer diagnosis or anything like that? Um, if you meet with the genetic counselor or someone in genetics, our hope is that we are able to kind of help help you understand what your risk is if if it if there is a risk based on family history um, and that you're connected with the right channels to you know if there's anything differently that needs to be do from a screening standpoint
on the podcast, people don't always see all the additional guests that we have in the room, but I do want to right. open things up. They have been very quiet during this uh, <laughs> podcast, which is unusual for William. I know his voice normally pipes up <laughs> at well, some I, I point. Submit, I submitted my throat madness, but why don't you introduce Maddie? Too? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we're also here. We're so excited because we have another SBC first where we have one of our volunteers and interns from UMass Boston who is a graduate student here mm-hmm. with us and um, part of our surviving breast cancer team. So Maddie. Mm-hmm. It's all yours. <laughs> so, again, I don't think that was like thorough. Like, what, what are you studying? How did you get involved? Um, so, my name is Maddie, and mm-hmm. I'm currently pursuing MSBA in UMass Boston. Mm-hmm. And um, why did I get involved? Well, um, well, I have personal experience, not personally with breast cancer, but mm-hmm. with a, one of my very personal family members going through mm-hmm. cancer itself, and that's mm-hmm. how I got involved in like the Cancer Foundation, and mm-hmm. I saw William at one of our uh, fairs, and I was like, oh my god, this is such a great organization, and that's how I came about here. Um, so I do have one question for you. Yeah. Um, was, when you, you come across a, like many patients, right? Mm-hmm. What are some questions that you wish your patients asked you? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. That is a great question. Hmm. Um, that I wish they asked me. Ooh. Wow, you really got me in a right here. <laughs> um, yeah. um, well, that's hard too, because a lot of times we walk in and we don't yeah. know what genetics really is. Right, you know? so that's something so. that I know a lot of, thankfully, I feel like a lot of patients are very upfront about. Some people just say, honestly, I don't even know why I'm here. And I will, I love that. You know, oftentimes, actually, when I'm going into a session, before I explain what you know, what we typically, what this looks like, like I go through your family history, we'll talk about drug testing. If you want to do it, you can do it today. Then I say, but before we jump into all of that, what questions do you have that are pressing? And oftentimes that opens the door to whatever is the most pressing question for them. So I think if I had to answer your question, I would, I would, I would like my patients to ask me the question that the biggest question that they have on their mind so that we can answer that first at the beginning of the session and then you know that's something that is not lingering on their mind or that they don't forget because at the end they were here to kind of answer your questions and really guide you through um, the session and so definitely you know ask away all the questions all the questions that that you have personally okay um another Mm -hmm. one is like you know you touched on different cultures and you know different Mm -hmm. ethnic groups that you know um you know are database is right. like not really inclusive of all of those mm-hmm. and for me personally you know mm-hmm. like approaching that conversation with my mother or my grandmother is extremely mm-hmm. hard because you're going to be like why we don't have a history of this but you know yeah. to be on the safer side like it's always right. good to know right. how would you suggest like you know cultural differences mm-hmm. what kind of cultural differences do you see in your right. patients and how would you suggest that your patients tackle them mm-hmm. when they have this conversation with your family members yeah that's a great question um so kind of speaking personally actually so my parents are of pakistani background so and i feel like you know I, I feel like I've, I feel like I can kind of relate sometimes to some of you know some immigrant communities where I feel like I've seen this come up as well where a lot of times when we think about care we're thinking about care from a like okay I broke a bone I need to go fix it but not preventative care isn't necessarily a conversation that happens too often um, and so I think one of you know, I know at least from our standpoint as as healthcare providers in the field, one of the things that I'm personally passionate about is to do community outreach, to do, 
you know, have these kind of educational conversations, these educational discussions in communities that so often, you know, might not be accessing or might not be utilizing some of these services and, you know, really kind of, you know, helping help educate them around these why we do this and what the purpose of this is to kind of and, and making it more accessible too because I think that's another barrier to a lot of people of getting genetic testing is it's just not something that's accessible to them right. um, you know genetic we're, we're sitting right now at Dana-Farber where yes you've got like 19 genetic counselors right here to talk to you about genetic testing but there's lots of places that don't have a genetic specialist, let alone a genetic counselor. And so I think that, um, you know, making sure that for as a healthcare provider, the thing I, I like to focus on is trying to see what steps can we take to make our services more accessible to everyone. As far as what advice I would give to someone in the family, you know, I think um, it kind of goes down, ties into what we kind of talked about a little bit earlier too, which is that, you know, sometimes if there is a little bit of a hesitation for people to want to even think about this or talk about this. Sometimes it can be stemming from a, you know, a place of where, um, you know, they, they don't want to come to terms sometimes with just, you know, if they have seen someone in the family go through something difficult, they don't want to think about even the possibility of right. this being something that could be hereditary, like a risk that other, worse. right, exactly, exactly, like exactly, absolutely. So I think that that's something that, um, you know, from, you know, where it could be potentially helpful if there is someone in the family who is interested in this, say, you know, see if you can have that person come along with you mm -hmm. to one of these things. Um, and I think, you know, we just need from our end, we need more and more outreach events as well to kind of talk to different communities who might not be exposed to a lot of this information and really talk in a group setting about why someone might consider this, what are the benefits of doing this. Um, and so I know here we just, uh, I just started this community outreach kind of little a quality improvement group in our in our department so we can try to do some of this outreach in different communities that so often don't hear or talk about genetic testing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Those are questions I had. Great. <laughs> what was your background? Um, like, mm -hmm. where are you from originally? Uh, well, I am Indian, uh -huh. and but I grew up in Singapore. Uh -huh. um, so I did my undergrad with um, business administration and biochem. Mm -hmm. So that was my little bit of my history. But um, I've always been passionate about well, like I said, I did see someone go through cancer, mm -hmm. and um, I think being educated and having information up hand is mm -hmm. really good because knowledge is power, and that kind of like you know right. helps you kind of make your decisions every step of the way. Um, Absolutely. And wait, I do actually have another question. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Yeah. Um, is there any such thing as too much information? That's a great question. You really have all these like really great questions. Um, I was thinking too, um, while you're yeah. thinking about the answer to that, um, with your background with MSBA, we're talking about big data and all this right. sequencing. I'm like, oh right. my God, this is perfect. This is right. Perfect. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, I think to too much information. So, you know, one thing that you said is something I, we say we say and hear a lot in our sessions is the knowledge is power mm -hmm. piece of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So, like we talked about, a lot of cancer is sporadic. We don't know some risk factors that people might have. Sometimes when someone is identified to carry, let's say, a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, we might actually have more of a clearer idea of what their risk is. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can help guide their care appropriately. Um, so definitely, you know, that's the thing is like, you know, knowledge can be very powerful. 
Now, is there too much information? I think that's where, you know, when we talked about the different sized panels that we can do with genetic testing, some panels might be large enough to where there's lots of new genes on there or genes on there that even if we did identify changes, we might not change any management because there's no real management guidelines on them or something like that. And that's where, you know, as a genetic counselor, I work with the patient to see, you know, based on what their kind of, you know, how, how they want to take this information. Are they the kind of person who are like, you know what, that kind of information doesn't bother me at all. I'll just put it, I'll be, it'll be easy for me to put it on the back burner, not worry about it. Or are they someone who will, it will be too much information for them and they don't want to have to think about that. And that's where we can, you know, there's, it's like not a one size fits all, but we really work with the patient to see what's the best decision for them. Uh, the last question that I had was, how do you reach out to that underserved community mm. to, to try to bring them in for either clinical trials or genetic testing? So that's a great question. With the genetic testing piece of it, so I don't necessarily work with clinical trials, so I'm not too familiar with what recruitment strategies are there. Um, but from a genetic testing standpoint, so one thing that I'm involved in, I know here at Dana-Farber we have a Community Cancer Care Center over at the Whittier Street Health Center. So that's a federally qualified health center, um, actually probably about 10 minutes away from here in Roxbury. So about four times a year, um, I go there along with the geneticist on our team. Uh, and there's also other people on staff there too, like a nurse um, and someone from research as well. We go there at the federally qualified health care center where they're typically used to coming in for their care anyway. And you know, offering genetic counseling and genetic testing right there on site. And so far from what we've seen is that testing uptake is basically comparable to testing uptake here, um, which is encouraging to say the least. Um, but at the same time, I think there's um, definitely, there's always going to be room for improvement, I think. So a lot of times the people that we, you know, the population, the patient population we're seeing there are people who might not, you know, maybe coming in on a weekday is really hard for them. If they have like, you know, hourly jobs and stuff, sometimes transport is an issue. Um, so I think that's something I definitely think about a lot is, you know, what are ways in which we can make genetic testing and such accessible to them? Um you know, in, in a way that, that, you know, that they're able to then actually make it to uh, the appointment. And mm -hmm. do you chase after grants? Because a lot of these people mm. don't have the economic wherewithal to, to pay for genetic testing. That's a great question. So we know that some labs that we use are really, we're really grateful for some of these labs that actually do have, say, policies where, you know, if you have mass health, then you have zero out of pocket. So we don't have to worry about any kind of out-of-pocket cost to the patient in that case. A lot of the labs have very, very generous patient assistance programs where if you have, uh, if you're, you know, at a certain level kind of over even the poverty line sometimes there's something, you know, it's a zero out-of-pocket cost, very generous um, information there as well. Um, but we don't currently have any grants right now that where we can, you know, directly, you know, right off the bat say, yep, we've got grant money for this. But, you know, I think that's absolutely something that could be helpful too. Fatima, thank you so much for a phenomenal conversation. This was amazing. I felt like our energy was just feeding off of each other and we were just like so excited to be talking about all things genetics. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and expertise and answering all of the questions that we have. So until next time. And thank you everyone for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences 
and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.